God, we turn to your word. We need to hear it. We know we need to hear it. We pray that you would use it as you intend in our hearts, that your Holy Spirit would be active amongst us through this sword of the Spirit, that you would open our eyes and our ears to see and to hear what you have for us. We need the help of the Spirit as we approach your word. In Christ's name, amen. Well, our study in Jonah is part of a, a wider series that starts in Jonah, and, and then we'll also go to Nahum, the book of Nahum. And the title for the series, or the theme for the series, is How to Stand in the Face of Evil. How to Stand in the Face of Evil. And I think of that as it relates to the book of Jonah, kind of at two different levels. One is sort of a, a generic general evil. Maybe the evil is even too strong for what we're talking about. But it's, it's people where we look out upon them and we think because of who they are, they're kind of lesser than us. So maybe we, because of who we are in our privileged place, are more deserving of God's mercy and God's grace. But those over there, yeah, God might be merciful to them too, but he doesn't owe it to them like he owes it to us. Because they're, again, we might not use the word evil, but they're just not as good, is probably how we'd say it. So maybe we think of it as kind of, we're who, we who are raised Baptist, versus maybe someone might think those who are raised Roman Catholic. Or maybe you think, we who are, are um, I guess I shouldn't say we, but those who are native or long-time Canadians versus immigrants or something like that, where you can think, well, we're the ones who are deserving, and those, they, they do bad things. They're not as good, or they're not, they don't believe the right things, or whatever. Or we can think of the Western nations versus the Middle East. You can think of Leafs fans versus Habs fans. You know, we're... Yeah, it was a joke. But <laughs> this idea where maybe because of who we are, God owes us something, and who they are, God doesn't owe them the same thing. But we can also think of how to stand in the face of evil in a much more personal way. So, we've been treated very badly by somebody. So badly, that when we think about the prospect of them repenting, we don't want them to repent and be shown God's mercy, because they want that, we want them to suffer for what they've done. Maybe it's a family member who's done us very wrong. Maybe it's a, a friend or a neighbor, co-worker or a boss. Maybe it's uh, some kind of criminal, an abuser. But what they did stings so deeply and so sharply that it's hard for us to desire mercy for them. Now, for some of us, in either of these categories, these, these feelings and these thoughts are, are right on the surface. They're right there. We can see them. For others, they are below the surface. They're more subtle. Right? Maybe, maybe even you don't even know they're there. They're just lurking in ways that come out in unexpected ways. But for us who think that it makes sense for God to show us mercy, 
but less sense for God to show someone else mercy. The story this morning is for you. For us who think that it makes sense for God to show us mercy, but less sense for him to show mercy to someone else. Whatever reason, the story this morning is for you. Listen to it as the scriptures tell it. All right? Now, the way our story begins is actually, it's, it's the whole book of Jonah. And as we've been learning, there's two parts to Jonah. So part one in the story of Jonah is Jonah, the prophet of God, disobeys God's word, rebels against God, and as a result is under judgment. He's thrown into this ocean that's a storming ocean. He sinks down, he's tangled in seaweed, and he's about to drown. And God delivers him and saves him. And so in chapter 2, you hear of Jonah praising God for the salvation he's just received. So that's part one. God's prophet rebels, is under judgment, and then cries out to God, is saved, and praises God for his salvation. Part two began in chapter 3. And in part two, the focus is more on Nineveh. Nineveh as a people who are doing such wicked things that God is going to judge them. But then Nineveh cries out to God in repentance. And God, like he did with Jonah, delivers them from their pending doom. So the question is, how will Jonah respond to Nineveh's salvation? Will he respond like he did to his own salvation? Or will he respond differently? And that brings us to chapter 4. And it reads, But it displeased, it displeased Jonah exceedingly. And he was angry. So Jonah hears of what God has done, that he's relented from his disaster, and he's not happy about it. In fact, the message is not just that he's displeased, but that he is exceedingly displeased. He is angry, and as we'll see in verse 3, he is so angry and displeased over this that he wants his life taken from him. Seems a bit extreme, eh? So let's try and dig into why why this dramatic reaction. He tells the Lord. He tells them, look, way at the beginning of the story when you told me originally to go to Nineveh, do you want to know why I fled to Tarshish? We talked about it then, God. The reason is, is because I know something about you. And then he cites Exodus 34.6 where it teaches that the Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and relenting from disaster. Now that phrase about God, which was first revealed in Exodus 34, became a sort of creed for Israel. So that that phrase is quoted ten times in the Old Testament and alluded to dozens of other times. 
And Jonah says, look, I know this about you. I know that though you are just, though you do punish evil, your bent, your inclination is to be merciful and to be gracious. And so, I knew that about you, and so I knew if I went to Nineveh with the message of judgment and they repented, this is exactly what would happen. Jonah's problem is not his theology. He's got his theology right. He understands his God well. But if you think about his situation, he's part of the people of Israel who by the time of Jonah's day were an oppressed people. They were hungry. They were overtaxed. They were at the whim of the various empires that were always competing over them. He'd seen his people carried off in war and battle and crushed. He'd seen the suffering and the plight of his people. God's people. God's chosen people. The people who belong to Yahweh. And he knew that it was coming at the hands of nations like Persia or Assyria, which Nineveh was the capital of. And he knew these nations, especially Assyria and Nineveh, were known for their evil actions. One historian called them the Nazi stormtroopers of that day. And so when he thinks about things, he thinks, how should God be acting? He should be acting to deliver and save us and acting to judge and condemn then. That's how God should be acting. Why is he angry enough to die? Because he thinks, if this is how the God of this world lives and runs things and does things, I should have said rules, not lives. If that's how he rules and does things, I don't want to live in this world. Better for me to die than to live with a God like this. It's a broadside attack on God's character. God, because of how you are in your character, I don't even want to live in your world. That's how angry I am with the kind of God you are. But look, look at how God responds. So gentle, so patient. Just as when Adam sinned in the garden, God responded with a question of Adam. God here responds with a question for Jonah. Verse 4, Yahweh said, Do you do well to be angry? That's all. And then the Lord sets in place, sets in motion a plan to show that, to help Jonah see that he does not do well to be angry and to be assaulting God's character and questioning it in the way he has. So we move along. Jonah decides, okay, he marches off stubbornly 
sets himself, uh, he weaves together some leafy branches and creates a little structure for him so he can get a little bit of shade. And he sits up on a hill, he crosses his arm and sits down and he's going to wait stubbornly to see, is God going to finally see things my way? And he looks to see what's going to happen to Nineveh. Meanwhile, look what God does. Verse 6. And the Lord God, or Yahweh God, appointed a plant. You remember God appointing anything else in the past in Jonah? What you're going to find as we go along is the author who wrote Jonah puts all these little details in. They're just amazing little details. You see, there was another uh, thing appointed by God. It was a fish. Back in chapter 1, verse 17, Yahweh appointed a fish to save Jonah. And so here again, Yahweh is appointing something, a plant that's going to grow and thicken up the covering over this booth that Jonah's made, and particularly over his head, be really thick there to protect him even more from the sun. And look what it says in verse 6. Uh, he appointed the plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. Do you see what the author's doing and pointing out what's going on in the story? He's making a parallel between Jonah's first salvation, appointed by a fish and saved from drowning, and now appointed a plant and saved from the oppressive heat. Well. Look at how Jonah responds. How did he respond in the belly of the fish? Praising God. Salvation belongs to Yahweh. And how does he respond here? Verse 6, the end. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. He rejoices. He, maybe he gets up and does a little jig, right? He's so excited the shade is here. I can be safe from this oppressive, oppressive Middle Eastern heat. But, but, again, notice what the author is doing. That word exceedingly you've seen before. He's exceedingly glad. Just a few verses before, he was exceedingly angry. What's the author trying to do? What is God trying to do and instruct us? Jonah, he's telling us that Jonah was as angry over God's deliverance of Nineveh as he was glad about God's deliverance of him. He was as angry over God's deliverance of Nineveh as he was glad over God's deliverance of him. Do you see that? But God's lesson is not done. He plans step two or move two in his plan. Jonah falls asleep. The sun goes down in the cool of night, as cool as it gets in that area. Dawn comes up. Or the sun rises. Dawn arises and Jonah wakes up and he's still exhilarated. I have this nice, miraculous plant over me 
And I can actually sit in a cool area in this hot, hot wasteland. But God has some more appointing to do. Verse 7. God appointed a worm that attacked the plant. The plant withers. And just like that, everything that Jonah was so excited about is gone. But God's not done appointing. Now he appoints a scorching east wind. It's the kind of wind that when you're in this hot, hot environment and you start to perspire, that that, that perspiration can cool you off, but this wind is so strong and so dry and so hot that it actually evaporates your sweat so quickly you cannot cool your body off. In fact, Jonah, is, he's got the sun now beating down on him. He's got this hot, dry wind blowing upon him. And the Bible tells us he, it was such oppressive heat that, that he, he was near fainting. He became faint. Again, note the ironies in how Jonah responds. Middle of verse 8. And he asked that he might die and said, it is better for me to die than to live. We've heard that before, right? Again, the parallel between his situation and losing out on this act of God's mercy in a sense, feeling the Lord's destructive force upon him. He's exceedingly angry about that. Angry enough to die. He had said the same thing. He was so angry about Nineveh's deliverance. When Nineveh is delivered, Jonah is so outraged with God that he would prefer to die than to live in God's world. But when Jonah loses his deliverance, he's so outraged with God that he'd prefer to die than to live in God's world. See the parallels? They're fairly obvious. And, to make the ironies all the more poignant, we are told that God says, again, do you do well to be angry? This time, in reference to the plant. But unlike the first time when God asked the question, this time Jonah responds. He crosses his arm, he stiffens his lip, And he says to the Lord, Yes, yes, I do well to be angry. Angry enough to die. And with that, Jonah disappears from the pages of Scripture. Never to be heard from again. This time when Jonah responds, he isn't putting up with God's lessons, no matter how patiently they are given. 
Now you probably notice how chapter 4 kind of mirrors what's going on in all of Jonah. Right? And so in all of Jonah, you have this um, Jonah's deliverance, his response to that deliverance, Nineveh's deliverance, Jonah's response to that deliverance. But you have that kind of at a smaller level within chapter 4, right? So, you start with Nineveh's deliverance and and Jonah's response to that, and then you have Jonah's deliverance, his response to that, and Jonah's losing out on that deliverance, his response there. Now, the attention's going to turn again to Nineveh. All these hints the author is giving us at, at the point he's driving at. And all this is meant to set up Yahweh's final question in verses 10 and 11. And Yahweh said, You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right, from their, their, their right hand from their left, and also much cattle. Jonah has said to the Lord, I don't want to live in your twisted world. If only God would make Jonah king, right? Jonah would do a much better job. But God is exposing Jonah's heart. And this statement makes it so clear. He says, look, you pity this plant. But you don't pity it because it's something you made. You don't pity it because you've had a long relationship with it. In other words, there's only one reason that you're pitying this plant. Vain self-interest. Because it was good for you. And he says, but you want to know about my pity for Nineveh? Why I have mercy on Nineveh? First of all, it's what I have created. It's filled with, with, with what I have made. It's teeming with livestock and people. It is my creation. And also, there are 120,000 people there who have not heard my word, who don't know right from wrong. They don't know... They don't have access to what all of Israel has, to what you have, Jonah. They don't know their left hand from their right hand, morally speaking. Who? Who has the better heart? Jonah or Yahweh? Who is right in their pity? Jonah Do you do well to be angry? Should I not pity Nineveh? Should I not pity Nineveh? There's no answer. Just silence. Just the end of the book. 
question hangs over us ominously. Why does the book end this way? With this question. With no reply from Jonah. With no resolution to the conflict. Well, is it not because the question isn't ultimately for Jonah? Isn't it because that the question is ultimately being asked of Israel? Isn't it because the question is ultimately being asked of me? Isn't it because the question is ultimately being asked of you? You see, a story like this doesn't need a pastor to stand up and moralize at the end. The picture is so clearly painted with such stark parallels and contrasts and with such rich irony that we cannot miss the lesson. Do I rejoice when God's mercy is upon me but grow angry when His mercy is shown to my enemy? Do I grow angry when God's mercy passes over me but root for God's mercy to pass over my enemy. And I think the crucial question, the crucial issue at the center of this is, do I see that all of us, all of humanity, every human being is in the same boat? Helpless to save ourselves. full of sin that separates us from God and casting ourselves hopelessly at the mercy of God, saying, like the Ninevites did, as we saw last week, will you perhaps be merciful to us? Do we see that we're all in the same boat? And Jonah shows us by the absurdity of his failing how important it is to get this right. I mentioned a couple weeks ago the story of, uh, you know, when you, you have something um, special for your, for your child, right? So maybe your child comes up to you and you're planning on giving him this nice big ice cream cone. He loves ice cream. And he comes up to you and he says, can I have a piece of candy? You have a mitt in your pocket. You say, no. And before you can tell him why, he starts, you know, crying and getting upset. And it's in that moment, the absurdity of the moment as you see your son throwing a fit because he's about to get an ice cream cone, that a light bulb goes on over your head and you say, I think I act this way towards God all the time. I want the little mint. He's got an ice cream cone planned for me and I'm throwing a fit because I don't have the mint. It's a little bit like that with the story of Jonah, right? It's this absurd story. It's a true story. But it's this absurd story and the author's drawing out the absurdity of it for us. So we can see it so plainly, but not so we can sit and critique Jonah. So that we can see our own hearts 
and examine our own hearts. There is no place for self-righteousness and arrogance in the Christian's life. There is no place for holding a grudge that says, I want God's judgment on this person even if they were to repent in the Christian's life. There is no place for ethnocentrism where we think of our nation or our um, ethnic group as superior or more important or more central to God's plans than the others in the heart of the Christian. I was thinking of some, how some of the great poets of Christian Christendom, um, when I say great, they've written great words I actually hadn't heard of either of them, but have, have articulated this. One is a man named Samuel Medley, who wrote, A beggar poor at mercy's door lies such a wretch as I. We as Christians understand that. A beggar, poor, at mercy's door, lies such a wretch as I. Or Augustus Toplady wrote, Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling. That is the testimony of every true believer in this room. If that is not your testimony, I would be so bold to assert, and I think from Scripture, that you're not a believer. We don't come to God and say, Look how much I deserve your mercy. Nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to the cross I cling. And if we who are sinners who don't deserve God's mercy have been shown mercy, what right do we have to say that we are better than others or that we are more deserving of that mercy than others? We don't. We have no right. So when you think of the big picture of Jonah, it's telling you, how do I stand in the face of evil? I don't let evil shrink my heart because God's heart is wide with mercy. In other words, Jonah is addressing the problem where I can think that the sin that somebody evil has perpetrated against me or others is somehow worse in terms of what it does with their relationship with God than my sin. That I fail to see that the same poison at work in them as at work in my own heart. If evil and the evil that you've seen and experienced causes you to start to think that way like it did for Jonah, the book of Jonah is God's corrective to us. We all alike come to mercy's door as beggars poor. Nothing in our hands. And of course, it is the good news that gets unfolded further in Scripture that Jesus then takes our sin and our filth 
upon himself upon the cross and then gives us his righteousness so that we can be called children of God. God, being rich in love because of his mercy toward us, while we were still dead in our sins, made us alive together with Christ so that we can experience all of eternity with him. We have no place to look down on others, to begrudge others, or to not root for repentance for others so that they can know God's mercy. Let's pray. God, sometimes these feelings are right at the surface. Feelings of superiority, looking down on other ethnicities or other uh, religious backgrounds. Or despising one who's done great evil to us and grappling with how to interact with them. But sometimes these feelings are more subtle below the surface and we don't even notice them. But I pray for all of us here that the balm of Jonah would heal our souls. That we'd understand the nature of the gospel. Nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to the cross I claim. Do this by your spirit in our hearts that we might be able to stand in the face of evil. In Christ's name, amen.